Psalm 37, Psalm 37, if we can turn there in the Word of God this morning. And yet again, I'm going to uh, continue on this thought that we've been developing and looking at on the fullness of Christ. And I want to look at it in the context of which it's revealed and described to us in Psalm 37. And so, I've entitled this message, Dwell in the Land. Dwell in the Land. And when we speak of the land, we're speaking of Christ. Amen? In His fullness in which we are to abide in and experience on this side of heaven and the next. Amen. But especially now, in the, uh, in the spiritual sense, we are to dwell in the land, dwell in Christ, dwell in the fullness of the blessing that is in Christ Jesus. And so it's in that context that we want to consider the particular psalm this morning. Now, the psalms, are, are a, they're, they're wonderful to read. Amen? I think uh, we've already read a few this morning. Because there's a beauty about the Psalms themselves. They are profound in certain ways and in many ways because uh, the reality is, is that they capture human experience. That's what makes the Psalms so distinctively different from the rest of Scripture. In the Bible we have doctrine, we have history, we have prophecy, but there's a, there's a, there's a dynamic or a nature that regards in relation to the Psalms that make them personally profound because they relate to human experience. They identify with the realities of life in many, many different ways. And so the Psalms capture for us emotion. They capture for us our personal feelings that we may have, the attitudes of our heart, the gratitude we have towards God. We find them all these things scattered throughout the book of Psalms and so it is wonderful for us to read them and so often we identify with them, don't we? So, and, and sometimes it depends on whatever the circumstance of life is at a various point that one particular Psalm seems to stand out and speak to us and minister to us in a certain way. I've read Psalm 55 and I've said like David, oh, that I had wings like a dove. <laughs> Maybe you haven't said that, but I have. It would be better just to fly away. Uh, but, you know, because that's the beauty of the Psalms. They capture for us the raw emotions that we feel uh, and experience and that we go through uh, and so we find great encouragement and instruction and edification through the Psalms themselves. And so, uh, it's in this context, again, that Psalm uh, 37 uh, relates to life's experiences. And as we will consider, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, well, it's a long Psalm in terms of its 40 verses. We're not going to go through all of it, but we're going to go through specifically the first eight verses and we will scatter through a few others as well. But we want to glean from it what it is that is being revealed and what it is that the Lord would speak to us and how to apply it into our lives. Because, again, what makes this particular psalm distinctively different is it doesn't have a prayer in it, so to speak. It, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not a, filled, a psalm that's filled with praise, but what makes this particular psalm, if you want to say distinctively different from the others, is that it's filled with instruction. It's filled with instruction and so when we read this particular psalm, we can glean and draw things from it. Actually, Ella spoke from it today she, when she quoted a scripture. We're going to get to that one later. And there were uh, a number of things that uh, uh, we can identify with this morning, but I believe that God wants to speak to us. God wants to encourage us. God wants us, hallelujah, to dwell in the fullness of the land, to dwell in the land. Because there, amen, we will and shall be blessed. So let's read Psalm 37, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse 8. The Bible says, Do not fret 
because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. And so here's David who's penned this particular psalm and uh, he's an older man, at least of mature age, because throughout the psalm we find reflection. So obviously he's experienced a few things in the course of his life and we're well aware of that in, as we read the Bible. And so as he's pondering uh, and, he, and he expresses himself in this particular psalm, he's instructing us, he's wanting us to understand some lessons that he's learnt as well in the course and journey of his life. And so really, in, if you pick up the spirit in which David is writing, it's more or less, let me put it this way, he's starting it and he's saying, uh, you know, he says, do not fret. Or in other words, he's saying, calm down, relax, just take a chill pill. We'll put it into modern long language. Uh, but calm down, cool down and relax. Because uh, as he reflects upon the issues that he's going to touch upon, it's interesting because there's a, in this life, if, we're not, if we don't guard our hearts, there's, there, there are things and there are reasons for us to get angry about and frustrated. And so three times from verse 1 to 8, we find the words, do not fret, do not fret, do not fret. And it's repeated obviously for, uh, for various reasons but it doesn't just, when the word fret here in the Hebrew is not just referring to an anxiousness of the soul. Obviously it incorporates that, but it incorporates more than that. The Hebrew thought here in terms of fretting, it means uh, literally to burn, to get heated up, to show or incite passion. And so it's not just an anxiousness, it's a burning up of a, a, a frustration, it's a simmering uh, uh, and, a, and a, uh, a heat, if you want to call it, that burns in our hearts and ultimately expresses itself in our words in which we, frust- we are fr- we're expressing our frustration or our anger at things we observe around us. And the things that we see around us, especially as it relates to the world around us and especially as it relates to, as the Bible refers to them, the wicked. You see, in verse 1, he says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. And so he's capturing the thought here that as uh, uh, the, the, the soul that would look around and consider the issues of life and consider the people around us and the world around us as we look at all that's going on and then we look at our lot in life and somehow we begin to feel and get frustrated because sometimes the question arises, well, why do they seem to have it better? Why is it that they seem to prosper? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of God and yet, you know, there's, there's d- degrees of adversity and suffering that I have to endure and go through as a Christian and yet, you know, why is it that the... And I say seems, okay? Why is it the world seems like it's uh, got it all together? Why is it that it seems so prosperous? Why is it that they seem so happy? You see, this is why David's addressing these, this mentality and these thoughts that can come into our mind because we can be quite vulnerable when we're going through various trials and tribulations of life and our perspective can be twisted. Our perception of things can be, uh, um, uh, <coughs> I guess, corrupted and we don't see things as they really are and so we look at things and we say, gosh, they, they seem to have it so much better. At least better than what I've got it. And so, why do they seem 
to prosper? Why is it that the Christian, why is it that the righteous seems to suffer adversity? Why is it that sinners are in prosperity and saints can be so often in adversity and suffering? Well, that's an interesting question and there's an interesting answer. I remember hearing Jacob Prash once in, through one of his messages talk about why is it that Christians uh, seem to uh, go through much more adversity than, say, others that are compared to in the world around us. It's because we're, the, we're, we're God's children, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And God, amen, he works in and through us. So we have certain, uh, 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 you know, we have the word of God that makes us accountable. And so, you know, we're, we're expected to conduct ourselves in a certain way, love the Lord in a certain way, obey the Lord in areas of our lives. And so if we are not doing, then sometimes life can get pretty difficult. <laughs> the Lord has his ways of dealing with us. And yet uh, we find ourselves often... Um, in adversity for ver- these reasons and others, but nevertheless, we can get uh, uh, disjointed in the way we perceive the world around us. In verse 7, David says, Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Don't fret. Don't worry about what they've got or what they haven't got, what they're doing, what they're not doing. See, this is why. Don't be envious of the wicked. Because really, if, we, if, if that grips our heart, then the devil is stealing from us what is right, ours in Christ Jesus and we're really missing out on the fullness of the blessing that is ours in Christ. You know what? You can have nothing in this life and still you have everything. Because as long as you've got Christ, my gosh... What more do you need? Let's strip it right back. If you were to lose everything and had nothing and the whole world fell apart, as long as I've got Christ, I've got everything. And see, that's really what it boils down to. But if we are thinking outside of that, and rather we're now comparing and we're considering and we're pondering, this is a dangerous place to be in. Because the Bible says don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. You see, they're they're workers of iniquity. We're talking about, according to God's language, those that practice evil and wickedness. What is there possibly that we could envy of the wicked? You see how dangerous this mindset can be and how damaging it can be to the child of God. In actual fact, I think this mindset displays itself in, the, in Australia as a whole because we have such an egalitarian mindset in Australia. You know, no one can be better off than somebody else, you know. And so, because life, the, the, the rule of life is that life's got to be fair. Hello? Since when did life get become fair? Because if you can't process that life's not fair, then you've got troubles ahead. Because life's not fair. The egalitarian mindset is not, is not biblical. And so, you know, because so that's why it's all about, what about me? What about my share? What about this? What about this? And so, oh, they've got that. They've got that. They can't succeed. So, we've got to pull, the, you know, that's a whole egalitarian mindset uh, and it cripples a nation and it cripples a people. But yet, when you find this mindset sometimes creeping into the kingdom of God and God's people, where we're looking at those around us and saying, gosh, they seem to have got everything and, you know, I can't even pay the bills. What about me? What about you? You've got Christ. The only side of that. So, we need to get a bit of perspective is what I'm trying to say. And so, David gives us that in verse 2. He says in verse 2, For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So, remember that. Life's short. Someone said it again this morning. I think it was Ella. Life is short. The Bible says is that uh, uh, in Psalm 39, verse 5, every man at his best is vapour. The Hebrew word there is, is vanity. It's empty. We think we're tempted to think that they've got something. They've got nothing, and anything that they appear to have, it's it's all vanity anyway. It's worthless. Naked you come in, naked you go out. 
But for the Christian, we've got Christ. In James 4.14, he says, uh, What is your life but a vapour that appears and then vanishes? And that word vapour is what we know as a mist. Have you ever seen a bit of steam and then the vapour? This comes and goes. Our life is but a vapour. So David's saying, wait a minute, listen, get some perspective on this. Clear your head. Understand the bigger picture of life, especially for the child of God. So if we're going to be free from fretting, as David is instructing us to be, then he gives us four particular truths or key truths that must characterise our lives if we're going to, if you want to call it, live a full and successful Christian life and walking in that fullness and victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And the, the four key words that we're going to look at is trust, commit, oh sorry, trust, delight, commit and rest. They're the four words that we are being instructed upon in our text that we want to consider because it's on that basis that we can live a successful and full Christian life and in reality if these four characteristics are evident in our life then it is the equivalent, as David would say, of dwelling in the land. Dwelling in the fullness of the land. Feeding, as we'll see, on the faithfulness of God. And so let's look firstly at David's first instruction in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. See, faith without works is dead. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is the foundation. This is the first starting point. That's why the word trust has to be uh, established because without faith it's impossible to please God. The whole emphasis of faith is trust. And so that aspect of trust must become greater and more evident in our lives, especially as we go on in the Lord. Our trust becomes, our faith becomes stronger and deeper and fuller. Or so it should. And so we're being instructed to trust in the Lord. You see, there's a reason why Jesus said, according to your faith. Because faith plays a very critical aspect in dwelling in the land. And I've said that before and we've considered various aspects of that in times past. But it is relevant. That's why we have, why do you think God put Hebrews 12 in there? Just so we can read about it? No, but that we can learn something from it. That we can be instructed by it. That we can implement the faith of, of those that are being surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, and we can look at their lives and we can say, you know what, to, of whom the world is not worthy. And yet we can look at them and say, you know what, I can, I, if, if, if they can do it, amen, and it's possible, they, they're, they're, I get encouraged by their lives and their example and their testimony. And so we are encouraged in our faith. We are to be strengthened in our faith. We are exhorted to trust God. And that's what exactly what uh, David is doing here in verse 3 when he says trust in the Lord. The Hebrew word here for trust, it means to hide for refuge. It means to be confident, to be sure. And our faith is not something that's flimsy. Well, maybe, could be. Now, our faith is built on such as confidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the confidence of things not seen. There is a confidence that is associated with trust. There is an assurance that's associated. We are sure, amen, and we know in whom we have believed. So, David says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now let's just think about, stop here, I want to stop here and focus on this because obviously David's writing to the children of Israel. He's writing to the nation and he's, he's mindful when he says dwell in the land, he's talking about the inheritance that, that God had given them, the land, the promised land. And so he's, in, he's, he's exhorting them to dwell in the land and to feed on the faithfulness of God. 
because the land was their inheritance. But you see, if you read Israel's history and you read the story of the nation of Israel, you find that there were times in which they were tempted to leave the land for various reasons. Actually, God got so fed up with them that he vomited them out of the land as in, in his judgment upon them. But in times leading up to that, you find various examples in which there was a temptation to leave the land because God, for various reasons, were, were there, allowed very, uh, there were famines. God, in his discipline, allowed them to be afflicted and oppressed at various times. And so the land didn't seem like a really happy place to be, to be in. And so others thought, you know what, the best thing to do is probably leave the land. And we know that that happened in the story, in the book of Ruth. We have the story of Naomi. And so, they've, you know, there's a famine in the land, the scripture says. And so, what have they said? Well, let's leave it. And so, they go down to Moab and, uh, and so forth. And you know the story. And there's, uh, she loses her two sons. They die and husband. And yet, she comes back to the land of Israel because she heard that there's bread there. God is faithful. He always is. Amen. And so she's heading back there and what does she say? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter, call me bitter. See, that's, a te- that's an example because if you look at that, there's a lesson here that we, we can learn because, you know, Christians, we go through hard times. We go through adversity. There are trials and tribulations in our life, maybe for re- uh, circumstances that are beyond our control, maybe because of the things that we have done and we now have we've sown and we're reaping in our lives, or well, whatever the case may be. But life can sometimes be extremely difficult, and all of a sudden, the temptation is to leave the land. You know, we've all you know the grass is greener over there. You ever felt like that? Somehow, and so when we are going through a difficult time, that's when we're at our most vulnerable and how we react in those times is, is very, very important. And sometimes people are tempted to leave. So leave, people are tempted to leave the land. So people sometimes make the conclusion, uh, you know, they may drop off in their commi- commitment, they drift away from the Lord, they can uh, stop reading their Bible, they can stop seeking the Lord in prayer and so all of a sudden they're drifting away from God. Their commitment to the house of God is not as it once was once and should be and so therefore again there's this gradual shift. And then there are those that, that just depart. They said, no, I'm leaving and off they go and they go back into the world. And so, and, and we have a, a phrase for it, the back, to, to backslide. Now, you see, when we, when we, when we turn and move away and, and rather than dwell in the land, we depart from the land, then like Naomi, the grass is not greener on the other side. What I have observed and over the years, and if you've served the Lord long enough, you will understand and you will un- agree that uh, life and his experiences, when I've seen people who, rather than trust God and dwell in the land and they've, They've moved, moved out and moved away. They're like Naomi. They've grown bitter. Have you ever seen that? It happens. And then you look, and then as years go on, you look back and you think, if only they had dwelt in the land. If only they had held fast. If only they had remained faithful. If only they had not drawn back. If only they had not made that decision to do that. It, wouldn't have, it would have been different. They wouldn't be in this bitter experience that they're in now. And so, this is a reality because the world can start looking much more appealing when you're going through a real difficult time, when you feel that, uh, that you know, you're hungering and you're thirsting. And rather than seek and draw nearer, closer to God, we start looking at the world. Hmm. Look at that person. Well, they seem all right. They're doing okay. And all of a sudden, the devil starts to lie. You see, the world's not, it, it, it appears more appealing. It appears more satisfying. It appears more tempting. But don't be deceived. One man said, leaving the land is tantamount to saying God is not faithful 
and cannot be trusted. I'll read that again. Leaving the land is tantamount to saying God is not faithful and cannot be trusted. That's why David would exhort us, that's why David would instruct us to dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. You see, that's the key. You're not just dwelling in the land, you're feeding on the faithfulness of God. Because as we heard this morning, we sang it, our God is a God of faithfulness. And God will never let you down. You see, if we will just trust God, if we will just remain in the land long enough, then I tell you, God will never leave you, He'll never forsake you, and He's never late. Amen. He's always on time. I've had times when I've struggled and I've thought, I can't go on like this, and then the faithfulness of God comes through. And everything changes. And I thought, gosh, if I had done that, what would have been? Are you hearing me this morning, church? The faithfulness of God, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We've got it. What a, what a faithful God. We can trust him, church. We can trust Him. If there's anything that you can have faith in, it's the faithfulness of God this morning. And we are told to feed on His faithfulness again and again and again. That's why this Bible, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why I, I can't not read my Bible. Why would I starve myself? Feed on the faithfulness of God. Read the Bible. And His words are spirit and they are life. And God will quicken His word and He will feed your soul. He will feed your spirit. And you get out and you've read and you go, you know what? That was the best meal I've ever had. And you go, it's breakfast time. <laughs> but you see, the, the word of God is what nourishes the soul. We feed on the faithfulness of God and we read his word and he speaks to us. That word feed in the Hebrew means to pasture. And we sang the song today. It captures the same thought. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is green here, guys. you just got to feed on it. You've got to start eating it. You've got to get hungry. Let's continue. In verse 4, David says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires or requests of your heart. So this is a beautiful scripture. You see, when we read that in the first instance, delight yourself in the Lord, we kind of, our, our first thought would be, well, it means to be excited and to be joyful in the Lord and it incorporates that. But you know, in the Hebrew it means much more than that. And as I looked at this, uh, I found it very interesting and fascinating at what David is really saying when he says, delight yourself in the Lord. He's, it's the Hebrew word delight, listen to this, it means to be brought up in luxury, to be pampered. Now think about that. Delight yourself in the Lord. That word delight means to be brought up in luxury, to be pampered. Now think about that. See, if you will delight yourself in the Lord, then you will receive of the abundance of provision and blessings that are incorporated in our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And so, the, the, delight yourself. There is so much that God has given us in Christ Jesus. There is so much that sustains us spiritually, that gives us the victory. And so, when we, when we, the thought of being brought up in luxury, we're being pampered. We, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible. And so when you begin to realise we are a royal priesthood, 
We're a holy nation. We are saints. We are children of God. And we, are, we have been, as Christians, we are brought up in luxury. We are pampered by God. And we are being told to delight ourselves in the Lord. In the Lord. Now, I know that we don't delight ourselves in the blessings. The Bible says we delight ourselves in the Lord, in the Lord who gives us the blessings. And in doing so, we receive Him and all that He is to us and all that He has given us. Delight yourself in the Lord. You see, the word faith movement can take this and they can make it say something completely different. And, you know, when we touch upon these things, we can see how it can be twisted. But one man said these words, this does not relate to those who want more things in their lives. That's not when we talk about luxury and pampering. You know, oh God, give me a Mercedes. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. As he says, it, doesn't re- it does not relate to those who want more things in their lives, but for those who want more of God in their lives. And that's what we need to have, a heart that hungers and thirsts for God. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. And when your heart is for God, and as we have looked at before in the Psalms, open your mouth wide and I will fill it, says God. You will be so filled to the brim. You will be filled with the blessings. You will be pampered and you will be brought up in luxury. Delight yourself in the world. Don't delight yourself in the things of this world. They're empty. Nothing compares to God and the blessings and the inheritance that we have in Him. Now, it says here, delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. I want you to think about that. That's not a recipe for, you know, word faith nonsense. But the reality is, is that we have desires. It's not evil to have desires. You know what? We have, uh, inside, we may have the desire for something and we can ask the Lord. And God will, sometimes he'll say no. Or, you know, if we ask amiss because it's just self, God's not going to be interested in it. But you know what? Sometimes we have desires and God sees those desires. And sometimes people are tempted to forsake God to pursue those things. But you know what? Trust God. God might want to bless you. I remember a girl that was in one of a previous church and she was getting older and she was saved at 18 years old and she hadn't found a husband and she was wondering, you know, am I going to get married? And then the Lord knew the desires of her heart and years down the road God made provision and blessed her with her husband. God sees. God knows. You have desires. They're not, there's nothing wrong with that. Bring them before the Lord. Bring your petitions. Let God speak to God. And God knows your desires. And you know what? At the end of the day, God wants to bless you. And if He says no, then it's for a good reason because he may, it, may, it may damage you or He may have something else planned for you. We just, we just walk by faith. We're trusting Him. God knows. And I've just got to trust God. Let's look thirdly, verse number five. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Again, it's a re-emphasis, but we're being told here not to delight ourselves, but, but to commit your way to the Lord. Commit it to God. You see, we like to take control for ourselves. We've got to work things out for ourselves. If we're going to succeed in this life, then I've got, to make, I've got to make it happen. No, you don't. The Bible says, commit your way to the Lord. And so that word commit literally means to roll, to roll, and the thought here is to roll off your burdens. Don't carry them. Put them, on God, put them in God's hands. And so this is what we're told to do. Even Peter reiterates it in, in, in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast your burdens of upon him because he cares for you. God loves you. He cares for us. He has our best interests of heart. He knows our deepest thoughts. He knows our deepest fears. He knows our deepest desires. But what God would say to us is, commit your way to me. Roll that burden onto me. 
cast it onto me because I have a plan and I have a purpose and I want to bless you. And we say, yes, Lord. See, does God, it says, commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him. Does God direct our steps? Well, Sister Ella answered that this morning. And it's in verse 23 of Psalm 37. Right there, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now look at verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his right hand. Now here's David's reflection in verse 25. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Hallelujah. I mean, there's right in there is an an exhortation and an encouragement. Trust God. David says, I'm old now. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken by God. Never. God is faithful. Dwell in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. Commit. Delight in the Lord. And commit your, your ways to him. And God will direct your steps. God will guide you. That's his plan and his purpose. You're his child. You see, obviously we're taking these scriptures and applying them to ourselves, but the whole context of David's psalm is writing, you know what, regardless of what's happening on the outside, whatever's happening in the world, don't be envious of the wicked, don't worry. You know why? Because we're in the Lord's hands. God is good. He doesn't leave us nor forsake us. And the truth is, is that church, we will win. We win. In death, we win. We don't lose. How can we lose in Christ? And so, in, and, and so this is what David is saying, that, uh, that God is faithful, God is good, and he has never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. Verse 6. He goes further in verse 6 when he says, He shall bring forth, your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. You see, one day the world's going to see we trusted in Christ. The world's going to see that we are the children of God. The world's going to see, amen, our light. Uh, He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. And in Christ Jesus, uh, we are in him... We're declared righteous, we have a future and a hope, we have eternal life, and yet those that are without Christ, all they have is, is destruction, eternal punishment that is ahead of them. Again, we win. So it's in light of this thought that we come to verse 7, where David writes and he says these words, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Rest in the Lord. You see, from trust to delight to commit, now to rest. There's a sequence here. And so this rest is really, uh, we understand it in the New Testament as in being in Christ Jesus. And so we have entered into his rest and, and then his rest is, is, is Christ and that becomes our rest. Hallelujah. And so when we rest in God, it doesn't matter if there's chaos going in and around us, we are at rest in the Lord. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus was on the boat and the winds and the waves were chopping and there was a massive storm and uh, the disciples, they're fretting, you know, and then Jesus is asleep. Like a baby. Peace. He's at rest. He's not worried. What are you worried about? Wind and rave, wind and the rain stop. Okay, all good. <laughs> and so really we see that. And for us in the midst of that, we've got to be mindful of these things. We've got to rest in the Lord. 
And that word rest again speaks of our calm surrender to God. A calm serenity that we have that comes from God. That's why the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't be fearful. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. You know, who's heard that phrase, silence is golden? There are some people that when they're silent, they're like, they get agitated. You know, they get uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, they got to talk because they're silent. You know, I don't mind a bit of silence. But you know what? One thing I've learned over the years is just to be still and to know that he is God. Just to be in the presence of God. Everything around me can be a chaos. But I can be in the presence of God and I can be still and I can be at rest and I can commit, I can delight myself, I can trust the Lord and I can pray and that's the place where I can walk away in God and be such a, with such assurance and such confidence. Be still and know that I am God. That's why he says in verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. You see, it's only when you come to a place of rest that you can really wait. Otherwise, uh, we're like this. I'm waiting. Have you ever waited? You know, you see people, they're agitated when they have to wait. I'm waiting. <laughs> That's not the way. No, it's just got to, it's more like this. <laughs> anyway, you catch my point, okay? I'm trying to be funny here, no one's laughing. My silly Australian humour. Anyways. <laughs> oh. Alright, I'll just keep going. <laughs> Trust, delight yourself, commit your way and be at rest in the Lord. You know, the rest of God speaks of his peace. Amen? The peace of God. That Bible says, surpasses understanding. You know... You try and work it out. How can, that's why, how can you have all that and still have peace? How can you have all this going on around you and still have rest in the Lord? That doesn't make sense. You're right, it doesn't. Because it surpasses understanding in terms of its comprehension, but also in its experience, amen, because sometimes we can't work it out either. But you know what? I've got it. Ella, I, I, I remember uh, ringing Ella I speaking to her the next day and I, and I had to write an email and I noted the fact that Ella was at peace. She had peace. The peace of God was ruling in her heart. And I'm sure for a moment there it, she was caught up in the whirlwind of it. But very quickly as she sought the Lord and asked God, God brought a rest, a calmness. And that, would be, and that was evident to me. I noted that. I saw that. And, and, and that, that encourages me. Because that's how it works. That's an, it's a practical example of how these things operate. Don't fret. The Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Rule in your heart like an umpire. And we want to just, you know, we're tempted to go this way or that way or do this or do that. It's like the peace, let the peace of God rule. It will guard your heart and mind, the Bible says. Rest in the Lord. Verse 8. Cease from anger. This is really concluding, do not fret, because these are, this is the last time he uses the word fret in verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. does you no good, does it? What was that? It's not worth it. And so there we have it. Just trust, delight, commit and rest. Don't fret is what the Bible would say to us. You see, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, church. We dwell in the land. We dwell in Christ. And the world looks at us and they can't grasp how it works. And so, uh, but nevertheless, it is what it is. You see, we as Christians, we're not weaklings. We're meeklings. <laughs> You know, because of our faith, it enables us to have a disposition of meekness. And so, therefore, we can subject ourselves to what's going on around us and still have a calmness of soul, still have a peace that rules in our heart, still have a rest in the Lord because we are trusting in God. 
And so it's not a weakness that we're displaying. People look at that and say, oh, it's just a crutch. No, you, you know, wait. You know what? That is, that is a strength of faith. That's what that is. Someone who's matured in their faith, someone who's trusting God and that is on display, that is not weakness, that is meekness. And that is a strength and a testament to their trust and the work that God has done in them and their their walk with God and their relationship with God. So, we we have been blessed and I want to leave you with this thought. We have much more blessings to come. Hallelujah. That's the thought that's being captured in the rest of this psalm. I want you to go to verse number 9. As David writes, let's read verse 9 through to verse 11. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place and it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. There's twice and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, when we, when we read that, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses, they latch onto those two verses and they think that's revolving around paradise on earth. But that goes way, way beyond anything of that thought. We understand the millennial reign of Christ and it has an application there, but at the same time, we're talking much, uh, we're going beyond that, hallelujah, in terms of the eter- that which relates to the eternal. Let's read, go down with me to verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He's a God of faithfulness and he is without injustice. When we look at the wicked, when we look at those around us uh, and sometimes you might be tempted to feel that there is injustice with God, understand this, there is no injustice with God. The Bible says he loves justice. It's the very fibre of his being and of his nature. He is a God of justice just as he's a God of faithfulness. So it says here, verse 28, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Go to verse 34. Wait on the Lord... Actually, um, actually, verse 29, sorry. Verse 28, and I was supposed to read verse 29. And the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. There's another reference to the land. This is a theme that's reoccurring. And we're talking and we're looking at it in the context of fullness of Christ, okay? And so, we, and so go now down to verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. And so, you know what? There's that which we already have and possess now. But you know, the Bible speaks of so much more. Our inheritance is we, we have received, but yet we have yet to fully possess all that is ours in Christ, but we know it's ours. Hallelujah. We've possessed some of it, but yet there's still much to be possessed. Actually, the Bible talks about this in Romans 8 and it says that the, earth, that the earth, the creation, is awaiting the manifestation of the sons of God. In, in the proper context. Because I tell you, we will come forth as righteousness, as light, hallelujah. We will inherit the land. We will, amen, shine forth as God has promised and we will reign with him, hallelujah. And then it says in Romans 8 again, see for me the Romans 8 is the promised land, the equivalent, spiritually speaking. Romans 8 talks about we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. There's a deposit that's been made in us, amen. We have the Spirit as a guarantee of the purchased possession. I tell you what, uh, there's another aspect of his possession because we are his and he is ours, amen, and there, there is so much to inherit and still that God has in store for those that love him. The Bible says in Romans 8, we groan within ourselves. We groan within ourselves. This is capturing the aspect of yet not fully possessing all that is ours, but we know it's coming. 
And so we just, we, we groan within ourselves because we want to be further clothed. We want it now, amen. I want to, let me die and depart and be with the Lord. Because we know that there's so much more. And so there is an inheritance that we are waiting for. And the Bible says in Romans 8, we groan within ourselves, we're eagerly awaiting the redemption of our body. Hallelujah. Because though we have the first fruits of the Spirit and though we are to, and that's what I've been teaching upon, is that we have a spiritual dominion internally, spiritually, we know that this body, it ain't getting better, is it? (laughs) This body, we're waiting because we know we have an inheritance in Christ that we still haven't received yet. We haven't possessed the fullness of our possessions as yet, but we know it's ours and we have faith and confidence to be absent from this body, to be present with the Lord and the time will come when corruption will put on incorruption. Praise the Lord. And we groan within ourselves, so eagerly awaiting for that day. But in the meantime, we're at rest. We're at peace. We've won. We've got Christ. <laughs> you see how it works, church? And so that's why in Romans 8 again it says in hope, in hope. We persevere in hope. We have a hope and it's a living hope. Hallelujah. Christ himself. So let's close in verse 40. In verse 40 I'll read it. It says, And the Lord shall help them and deliver them and he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Because they trust in him. God delights in his people that trust him, church. Let's just believe God. Let's trust God. Let's do exactly as the scripture is exhorting us to do. Let's, let's trust in the Lord and do good. Let's just delight ourselves in the Lord. Let us commit our way unto the Lord and let us rest in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word of God that's so rich and filled with so much encouragement, revelation. Lord, that you are so faithful to speak to us, even this morning, God, that we would receive of that fullness. God, that we would trust, we would do exactly as we are instructed to do, dwell in the land, and feed on your faithfulness. That is our lot in this life. You lead us by still waters. God, you make us lie down in green pastures. You are the great shepherd. Lord, and we are to trust you. We are to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you this morning. Have a